let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and then let's dive into the word. So, Jesus, we come before you, and God, we thank you that you're a good God. Lord, that's the foundation that we want today. Lord, no matter what we go through, we want to declare that you are good, that you are a good Father, that you love us, that you have good plans. So today, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bless and anoint the moms in this room, that you would give them strength and energy and wisdom to know how to raise their kids. Lord, that you would give them everything they need for life and godliness today and throughout this next year. And Father, I pray for those who are mourning today or hurting. God, you are the God of all comfort. So I pray that you would comfort them in a very real, tangible way. Lord, bless them. Give them a promise, I pray. And may you heal their broken hearts. And Jesus, may you speak to all of us today. All of us as your kids, we're here. And Holy Spirit, may you speak into our hearts. So God be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to look at a woman in Scripture who who walked through incredible pain and suffering and heartache, but who also walked through joy and fulfillment. And ultimately, her story is a story of surrender. It's a story where she actually had to surrender her heart to God. So if you want to flip to 1 Samuel chapter 1, that's where we'll be this morning. And first champ, or if you guys have been here before when I've preached, you know I kind of like to give a little bit of background just to set the context before we dive into the story. So first and second Samuel in the Hebrew Bible, um, they were one book. When, they, when it was translated into the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it was split into two books. So first and second Samuel is just just the book of Samuel, basically. And it's part of what they call the former prophets or the Deuteronomistic history, which is, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but I'm trying, okay? So um, it's part of this history. And what that history is about, well, it's part of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, okay? And it forms this idea where these are all narratives. It's all story. It's, it's history, right? So it's, it's Bible teaching that's not necessarily prescription or prescriptive where you should do this, don't do this, like the letters of Paul, but rather it's de- descriptive. So it shows us, or it just tells us the story, tells us what's going on, and then we are supposed to understand how this relates to Deuteronomy or to the law, okay? So it shows how God's people were supposed to walk out in accordance to the law or how they didn't walk out in accordance to the, to the covenant that they had with Yahweh. So this is part of the former prophets. And Samuel comes right after the book of Judges in the Hebrew Bible. In the Greek translation, it switched it up. Ruth is in between Judges and Samuel. And if you know anything about Judges, you know that the last verse, the last little part of Judges says this. This. It says, um, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. If you've read through Judges, you know that there are some horrible stories in there. People can commit horrible things. Even God's people, even the nation of Israel, did horrible things because they did what they thought they wanted to do. They did what they wanted to do rather than what God wanted to do, wanted them to do. So there's this cycle that you read about in Judges where um, they're prosperous, the nation is prosperous, but then they slip into pride and self-sufficiency and God sends... Um, and, and they also start disobeying and idol worship, that kind of thing. And then God sends oppressors to humble them. And after some time of oppression, they finally start to try, 
cry out to God and say, God, save us. And that's when God comes in and he raises up a judge to set them free. And they're like, woohoo, we're praising Yahweh and we're following God. And just to go into the cycle again of pride and self-sufficiency and then oppressing and all of that kind of stuff. So this is what Samuel, the book of Samuel is coming after. And it's interesting because the book of Samuel, the whole theme, the whole point of it, um, it's based around the covenant with God, as well as the monarchy or the kingship. And so it's funny because when you read at the very beginning of Samuel, it doesn't have anything to do with the kings necessarily. In fact, there's not even a birth story about Saul or David, but rather we have a birth story of a man who came before the kings and more specifically his mom. It focuses in on this woman who gave birth to Samuel, who would become a great and mighty man of God. But we focus in on this woman, and that's how the author starts. So in verse 1, that's where we find some information to set the stage for the story. So in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, There was a certain man from Ramatayim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. So this is where most of us tune out because we're like, oh, genealogies, wah, 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 right? Okay, basically, if you cross-reference this with 1 Chronicles 6, you read that Elkanah, he was part of the Levitical tribe, uh, a descendant of Kohath. But here it says that he's an Ephraimite. Basically, if you cross-reference it with Joshua as well, you see that some of the Levites, because you know that the Levites didn't get a portion of land. Rather, they were a gift to the Lord. They were a people to the Lord. They were spread throughout the land. And so there were Levites who were living in the hill country of Ephraim. So that's why Elkanah was probably called an Ephraimite, but he's also a Levite. And so that's how you figure out, okay, Samuel can actually serve in the temple later on because he's a Levite. So basically, just some back history stuff in case your mind goes there because I start questioning. I'm like, how does this even work? Anyways, we, we need to get to more of the history that the author starts to paint. And he starts to paint this problem. Like any good story, you have this crisis or something that needs to be resolved. So in verse 2, it says, this is what it says. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm like, well, obviously this is causing a problem. You know, I used to think <laughs> that I was a pretty good person. I used to think I was a pretty awesome person until I got married. (laughs) And then I realized, wow, I am a horrible person. Poor Trevor. Like, he has to put up for me, so pray for him, you know? seriously, marriage has been really good. We love it. It's been super fun, but it's hard work. And I've realized how much it's, it's revealed the horrible things inside of me. So I think, and I read this, and I'm like, that poor man. Why would he take two? You know, like, what? Like, Trevor does fine with me, but two of me? Like, Trevor might lose his mind, right? And so that's what I think when I read this. Now, maybe some of you women are, like, way better than me, and you're like, oh, my husband's way better, and, like, I'm way better. And Anyways, we're not, okay? So I, I read that, and I'm like, wow, what is he thinking? You know, this is an example of what is descriptive, not prescriptive. Don't go take two wives. You know, like this is just describing what happened. And the reason that this, that Elkanah probably has two wives is because it was a cultural normal thing. So you think about Abraham, right? He couldn't have kids with Sarah. So he took another wife or had kids with Hagar. 
If we keep reading the problem, we see he has two wives, but Penina has kids, but Hannah doesn't have kids. And this is probably why Elkanah has two wives, because he probably married Hannah first, and she couldn't have kids, and kids are a necessary part, especially at this time, for economic reasons. You need kids to actually like be taken care of later on in life. And so here's Elkanah, he's got two kids, and the author continues to say, this is the problem. Panina has kids, but Hannah doesn't have kids. Now, not only do you need kids at that time, but actually there was a pervasive thought that if a woman didn't have kids or couldn't have kids, she probably sinned and was being cursed by God, being punished by God. So not only did Hannah not have kids, but now people were thinking and probably judging and saying, well, what did you do that you can't have kids? So Hannah was walking around with this, with this shame, this guilt, this failure. You know, this was the whole thing for a woman in the Old Testament. It was a huge part of life. Like nowadays, it's okay for a woman to go get a career and that kind of thing. Back then, no such thing. You have kids and that's your job, you know? So this is a huge deal. Hannah is now walking around every day with this pain and this shame, thinking I failed, I've messed up. God, what's going on? Here's the situation. Hannah's broken because of it. Hannah's broken. Elkanah has these two kids, or two wives. Panina has kids and Hannah doesn't. So we continue on with the problem in verse 3 through 8. And it says, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, was, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. So basically, Elkanah, he's an upright man. He is a God serving the Lord. He loves the Lord. He goes up to Shiloh, which is where um, the tabernacle, the temple was before Jerusalem became the, the capital. When David became king, he made Jerusalem the capital. So they're going up to Shiloh year after year to make sacrifices to the Lord. Elkanah is a God-honoring man. He continues on and says, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. So sacrificing, they would go, they would slaughter the animal, but then they would divvy out the meat, and they would celebrate. It was a celebration, a time where they would eat, they would drink, they would have fun, they would be merry. But this is, I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation, like today for some of you, where it actually accentuates your pain. So this is supposed to be a time of celebration, and they're going up year after year. But it says in verse 5, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. That sounds really nice. But it's almost like when somebody's trying to honor you, and you're like, whoa, this is just accentuating the pain. This is just actually hurting maybe a little bit more. You know, Elkanah, he's, he's trying to be a good husband. He's trying his best. He, he's like, you know, Hannah, I love you. And he gives all of his kids and Panina meat. But to Hannah, he's like, have two pieces of meat. You know, like, he's trying really hard to be nice. But it still just accentuates the pain that she has no kids. The end of verse 5 says this, And the Lord had closed her womb. Continues on in verse 6, and it says, Because the Lord had closed her, wo- her womb, her rival, Panina, 
kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. I don't know if any of you have been so broken, so distraught that you have no appetite. But if you have been there, you know what Hannah was going through. I've only had that once where I've been so broken and overwhelmed by grief that I didn't even want to eat. This is the state that Hannah was in. It was painful. And it's bad enough to walk around in shame and pain every day knowing that you don't have kids and you're a failure and and all of this. But it's another thing to go up to a place of celebration where they're supposed to celebrate just to be mocked and bullied by this woman that you have to put up with every single day. And she's stabbing that knife into that wound a little bit further every time saying, you don't have kids. What's wrong with you? What did you do? Hannah was broken. And Elkanah, he's trying to be a good husband, right? He says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? You know, Elkanah's really trying to comfort her and bless her and walk with her. But this is a pain and a burden that he could not understand. It was one that Hannah was carrying somewhat by herself. So this is the situation Hannah's broken. She's pouring her heart out to the Lord. And she feels the shame and this pain every single day of her life. If I could take a little step back and just ask, how would you respond if you were Hannah? What would your response be to this situation? Because I look at this and I think there's two people that I would specifically respond to. And it probably wouldn't be very good or very nice. You know, I probably first off would have gone to God and said, what's going on, God? It says in here that God had closed her womb twice in verse 5 and 6. I would have said, what's going on, God? And I would have complained to God and not only complained, but I probably would have blamed him and said, you did this to me. How many of us have had that response to different situations in our life? where we actually complain and blame God and maybe have even walked away from God. I see it often. We all have. Where we look at our circumstances and we say, God, if you're a good God, how can this be? How can you let this happen to me? My normal response, my natural response probably would have been to blame God. My other response would have been to Panina, and I probably would have rather uh, endured the shame and the, the disgrace of decking her in the face and laying her flat out rather than endure the shame that she mocks me all the time. I don't know about you guys. I have a little bit of a temper problem, and that would have been my natural response. Maybe you guys are better than me and maybe more polite, but I swear, like, I think about this, and I'm like, how does Hannah put up with this? I literally would have laid her out. You know, like, and that is why I'm not in the Bible as an example. Praise the Lord. So, (laughs) yeah, I love it because Hannah's very real. She has a very real problem that many of us can either relate to or empathize with. We can feel her pain. And yet she doesn't respond like I would. (laughs) She responds in such a beautiful way 
that shows the depth of trust in who God is. And she acts it out in humble surrender. I love it. Let's look at her response in verse 9. It says, Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up, and Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much, and she prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. What a response. This woman who was walking in shame and pain every single day of her life, instead of blaming God, she actually goes towards God and lays her heart before him. Why? Because she knew who God was, and she knew that he was trustworthy. She lays it all out before him. I love what one... um, One commentator says, he says that Hannah had remarkable faith in the very one who had engineered the circumstances of her humiliation. How many of us can say that we are like that? This woman is an amazing woman. The very God who closed her womb, she goes before. And I love what she says. She says, God, remember your servant She doesn't come into the temple declaring, God, you got to give me a son. This is my, this is your responsibility to me. I deserve this. This is my right. No, she goes in and she says, God, remember your servant. But she asks boldly, why? Because she knows who God is. She says, God, can you give me a son? You're the only one who can change my circumstances. And she asks boldly. I love that. The very one who engineered her circumstances, she trusts with all of her heart. With all of her pain, she completely surrenders it to the Lord. You know, this commentator continues on and he, he brings out other things that blow my mind that I had no idea some of these things. He says, in spite of or perhaps because of her infertility, Hannah was a woman of faith. In fact, Hannah is portrayed as the most pious woman in the Old Testament. That's a bold statement. There's a lot of amazing women in the Old Old Testament. The most pious woman in the Old Testament. Here she is shown going up to the Lord's house. No other woman in the Old Testament is mentioned doing this. She goes up to the Lord's house. She goes up to the temple. And he continues on and it says, In addition, Hannah is the only woman shown making and fulfilling a vow to the Lord. She is the only woman who is specifically said to pray. You know, we assume that most women in the Old Testament prayed, but here we get in on the prayer and we hear Hannah's prayer. And he says that her prayer is among the longest recorded in the Old Testament. Furthermore, her prayer includes the most recorded utterances of Yahweh's name by a woman, which was 18 times. That's incredible. You know, this woman is an incredible woman of faith where she didn't blame or complain to God. She actually went and she laid her heart before the Lord because she knew him. She doesn't just say God. She actually uses God's personal name, Yahweh, 18 times. She knew who God was. She went up into the temple and she laid her heart before the Lord in her bitterness of soul. And she says, Lord, Yahweh Almighty, The God who is over all of the hosts. The God who is the God of the angel armies. 
Yahweh Almighty, hear my cry, your servant, and give me a son. She asks boldly because she knows who God is. I love, love, love her response. I think it's absolutely amazing because it's definitely not like mine. You know, the point is, is that Hannah surrendered to God because she knew who God was. She knew that he was good. You know, so many times in our culture today, we hear this question, well, if God is good, why is this happening in our world? How can he be a good God? You know what? We got to get away from that question because if we base our, our thoughts and our theology on our emotions, on our, our experiences, we're going to be shipwrecked. You know, our, my feelings go up and down every single day, multiple times a day. I'm sure some of you other women have the same experience. You know, if I base my relationship with God on my emotions, I would be a gong show more than I already am. You know, like, if we base our theology on our experiences, it's going to be a scary road. That's why we need to get to this. And what does this say? It says that God is good, period, always. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what's going on, God is good and he has good plans in store for us. It says that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He's a good God. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. He's a good father. He has plans to prosper us, not to harm us. Plans to give us a future and a hope. This is who our God is. So when we don't feel it or see it, we need to stand on it. Stand on this. Hannah knew God. She knew that God was good. And instead of blaming God and becoming bitter like Naomi, who said, call me Mara because God has made my life bitter. Instead of becoming like that, she actually trusts God. Instead of complaining to God and taking it into her own hands like Sarah did with Hagar, she actually poured out her heart to God through prayer. She prayed and said, Lord Almighty, remember your servant. And can you grant me a son? Can you give him to me? How many of us lose hope? Or we give up? Or we stop believing or praying? Because we haven't seen our circumstances change. And I'm not saying that God always does what we want. Or gives us what we ask for. And that's not the point of life. The point is not to get what we ask for. Actually, the point is to learn how to surrender our desires to God. To learn how to trust God. Pastor Paul talks about that all the time. Life is all about learning to trust that God is good, that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy, that he is loving. This is what it's about. Do we believe it? Do we know it? Do we act on it? Are we actually willing to surrender our hearts to God in prayer, despite the pain, despite the disappointment? Are we willing to surrender to God in humility when it's not easy? You know, it's funny. I I love how the story continues because there's Hannah in the temple. She's probably a bawling or like, yeah, a a snotty mess. Like if, if I'm thinking about how I cry, it's like, oh, I'm horribly ugly. And so there's Hannah and she's probably horribly ugly, blubbering, praying, pouring out her heart to God. And I love it because 
I don't know if you guys have ever had this happen to you, where you're actually starting to get pumped about your faith in Christ, and you're like actually raising your hands and worship and getting excited, and you're actually starting to talk about the things of God, and you're you're getting like into the Bible, and you're excited, and or maybe you've gone on a missions trip, and you've had this life-changing experience, and you come back, and you're telling everybody about it, but then people are like, we don't care. We don't really want to hear about it. We actually just want the old you. I don't know if you've ever been misunderstood or misread or people have said, you know, like, why did you get so hardcore into this faith stuff? Even our Christian brothers and sisters sometimes say, I don't like how hardcore you're getting on me, how religious you're getting. You know, I don't know if any of you have had that situation, but that's almost a similar situation that Hannah's going through. There's Hannah pouring out her heart to God. And you know who misreads the situation is the priest, Eli. And he actually rebukes her saying, woman, put away the wine. What are you doing? Like, he thinks she's drunk. Talk about misreading the situation, right? Like, she's broken, and he says, you're drunk. I, I think about it, and I'm like, <laughs> what would happen if I was, like, pouring out my heart to God, and, and Pastor Paul comes, and he's like, Amy, what are you doing? Like, why, like, you can't be drunk. You can't be drinking. What are you doing? Like, I think my response would be like, Pastor Paul, I'm not drinking. Come on, I'm praying. Like, you know what? Like, this is a funny situation. Eli, of all men, should have known what she was doing. And he rebukes her for being drunk. And I would have been offended. But once again, Hannah is a way better person. And she just responds. And she gets honest she says, this is what's going on. In verse, verse 15 and 16, she says, not so, my Lord. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my heart to my, my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. I love her response. I love how honest she is. You know, sometimes we come to church and we think, okay, put on my happy little mask and my smile and, and my chipper self and because I, I got to be okay at church and we got to always be okay and life is good and God, praise God, you know. Um, maybe we should take a clue from Hannah and actually be honest. You know, it's okay to be honest at church. It's okay to actually say, you know what, right now I'm, I'm really struggling. It's been a hard week. Because sometimes we miss out on God's blessing when we're fake. We miss out on God's answered prayer when we're wearing the mask. We miss out on people praying for us and seeing fulfillment for that, for that pain, for that heartache, for that prayer, whatever it may be, because we're fake. Maybe we should take a clue from Hannah and get a little bit real with each other. Say, you know what? I could use some prayer here. Eli um, cracks me up in this. Because in, like, he doesn't even respond or acknowledge that he completely misread the situation and thought she was drunk. No, like he just jumps right into the situation and he declares something over her. I love Eli's response because he says, go in peace and may May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. You know, this is what we all need. 
We need peace. He declares peace over her. He didn't know the full situation, but he heard enough. And he says, may God grant you what you have asked for. Go in peace. You know, it's funny because now in the New Testament, we actually know that we can have peace. We have the promise of Philippians 4, where it says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And what? What's the promise? And the peace of God that is better than, that surpasses, that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise we have as Christians. Yet how many times do we forfeit that peace because we don't actually believe that God is good or he's trustworthy? How many times do we keep stressing out about our kids or our finances or our jobs or or our homes or school, our career, whatever it is. When God says, hey, I'll give you peace, just lay it up on the altar We need peace, and we have it. We need to walk in it, because that's exactly what Hannah did. She didn't, like, argue with uh, Eli and say, well, no, but you don't know my situation, but this, but this. Like, I don't know if God can do this. And she just took it, claimed it, stood on it, ran with it. I love it. It says, she says, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way. And she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. See, right now, in this part, she has not seen any change in her circumstance. Nothing has changed about what she sees around her. But she made a decision to walk in that peace. She made a decision, okay, my face is no longer going to be downcast. Okay, I'm going to eat. Sometimes we just need to make that decision to grab that peace and to walk in it in faith. And it says in verse 19, early the next morning, they arose and they worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. She worshiped the Lord. She hadn't seen anything change yet, but she made a decision because God is always worthy of our worship and our praise. No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what our circumstances, God is good and he's worthy of our praise. Sometimes we need to make that decision to worship because it's when we step through into worshiping God, when we don't feel like it, that God usually breaks through. And he does something in us when we start to worship. When we make that conscious decision saying, God, I'm crying, I'm broken here, but you're worthy and I'm going to worship you despite how I feel. She walked out in peace. She received that word because she trusted who God was. She she had already surrendered her heart to God. And now she walked in that peace. You know, lots of us know the end of the story. And we know the happy ending that that, um, Hannah was given a son. And and she was like such an amazing experience. Such a miracle that she experienced Beautiful story, but I think the greatest act of faith that Hannah had to go through was giving her promised son back to the Lord. Because it says at the end of chapter 1 that she took Samuel, this little guy, after he was weaned, probably three years old, and she gave him to be raised in the temple and to serve the Lord. 
she completely surrendered her heart. She surrendered her kid. This promised child that was given her, she gave him back to God. I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if, if I, like after receiving a promised child or any child for that matter, could have given him up to the Lord to be raised in the temple. <sighs> raised without me, right? How many of us could do that? And yet it sounds pretty f- familiar. It kind of sounds like Abraham offering his son Isaac, the promised child, up to the Lord. It kind of sounds like Mary, who when she went into the temple, received this prophetic word from Simeon, who said, a sword will pierce your heart as well. And it kind of sounds like God our Father, who gave up his only son to die for us. Hannah is the same example. As she gave up her son, this promised child, to the Lord. Hannah is an example to all of us. That we are called to surrender our hearts just like Hannah did. Hannah completely surrendered it all, laid it on the altar and said, God, here you go. You know, recently I've been talking or I've had the opportunity to, to chat with a couple different women. And there's one, one in particular that um, she shared her story recently with me and this journey that she's been on that three years ago her and her husband... Um, We're all excited to have a kid. But instead of having this new little life, she gave birth to a stillborn. And it rocked them. And she was broken, and she shares about that brokenness. And how it it actually caused her husband to start to have panic attacks and anxiety. So that they couldn't even come to church at times because it was too much. The crowd was too much. You know, it took such a toll on them. And, and she shares now that God is doing some cool stuff and God is bringing them through, even though it's still hard and sometimes anxiety is still there. But God has given them a beautiful little son and that's awesome. But this is what she said when I asked her if I could share a little bit of her story. She said, you know, I've always wanted the Lord to use the suffering for his glory. And somehow it makes the loss more bearable, knowing he doesn't waste a thing, not a single tear. This woman is an example of a surrendered heart. You know, there's another, another lady who I got to hear her story recently, and um, amazing couple in our church. And they, she shared about how they lost their first, firstborn son when he was an infant. Laid him down asleep and never awoke. And as she was sharing this, she said, 10 years later, after that, um, somebody asked me how I could get through this. And you know what she said? She said, I wouldn't have changed it because of what God did in us as a couple and in our marriage and in our family. This is a woman whose heart is surrendered to the Lord. You know, there's another couple in our church who lost their son in a farming accident when he was young. And as they're chatting and as they tell the story, um, the husband says, you know, my wife has never once blamed me. She's a woman whose heart is surrendered to the Lord. You know, all of us actually have stories in here. All of us have different experiences. 
And I think about these women who didn't get the opportunity to surrender their kids to the Lord, but they had the opportunity afterwards to say, God, I surrender my heart to you. I will not complain. I will not blame, but rather I'll trust you. These are amazing women of faith. You know, as women, we are all called to surrender all situations to God. Whether you can't have kids, can I encourage you, continue to pour out your heart to the Lord. Continue to ask, who knows what God might do? He might give you a kid. I've seen that multiple times. He might not. But you know what? It's in the prayer, it's in the waiting, it's in the surrendering that God changes us. You know, maybe today you have little kids at home and you're like, I'm losing my mind. You know what? Keep surrendering them to God. Keep praying for them. Keep instilling in them the word of God and and asking God to bless them, but surrender them to the Lord. You know, maybe you've lost a child. Like some of these stories I've, I've said, continue to surrender your heart to God in that pain and let the comfort, he's the God of all comfort. Let him come and comfort your soul and heal it. It says that he binds up the brokenhearted. I love that. That's who our God is. You know, maybe some of you have grown in wayward kids who aren't following the Lord. Keep surrendering them to the Lord because they're safer in his hands. And ask God, do whatever you can to draw them back to your goodness, to your glory. Maybe some of you have grandkids. Can I encourage you, continue to surrender them to the Lord. Because God is bigger than any circumstance that can come their way. He is able to draw them to himself. So as women, can we surrender our kids to the Lord? But I also want to challenge the men in here, the dads. Because Elkanah, he could have nullified the vow that Hannah made. He could have said, no, we're not giving this kid up. He's mine. He had that authority. But at the end of chapter one, he says, let's go and fulfill our vow to the Lord. He took on that vow and he gave up his promised kid as well to be in the temple of the Lord. Here's the thing. I work with a lot of students. I'm not a parent. And so I never will know. Well, hopefully one day I'll know the pain and the love for a kid. I don't know that right now. But I watch a lot of parents and I watch a lot of kids. And what I see is that we will surrender our kids to anything else but the church a lot of the time. We see, I see... (laughs) Parents surrendering their kids to academics, surrendering their kids to athletics, surrendering their kids to to theater, to, to even to idols on the TV. What are we letting our kids watch? Maybe we should take a clue from Hannah and Elkanah and actually surrender them to the Lord, to the church, to the temple. You know, I see so many parents, and it's a stat, I don't know what the numbers are, but there are more and more Christian parents who are saying, don't go to Bible school, you need to get an education that will pay the bills. You guys, I can honestly say, God will take care of you, and a year spent in Bible college will be an investment for the rest of your life. But we're too worried about our plans, rather than releasing our kids into God's hands. Can I challenge all of us today to surrender our kids to the Lord? He's there. They're not our kids anyways. They're actually God's kids. And he has the best in store. (laughs) 
But I don't just want to talk to parents here today. I actually want to talk to all of us because surrendering our hearts is not just for parents. It's for every single one of us. No matter what your age, no matter what your gender, no matter what your situation in life, we are all called to surrender our hearts to the Lord. We're called to pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my heart, like you want it, Jesus. We're called to pray like Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. You know, we are all called to surrender our hearts to God. So if you're a middle school kid today, you guys rock. I love you guys. You're so much fun. And you know what? If you want to surrender to God, and actually for all of us, high school, young adults, adults, but mostly for our kids and our youth, if I can encourage you guys, surrender to God, you will never regret it. It might be hard, but it's good. And part of surrendering to God, Paul says in Ephesians, to honor your fathers and your mothers. And he says, as he quotes the Old Testament, quotes the Ten Commandments, and he says, honor your fathers and mothers. Why? Because it's the first command with a promise that you will live a long life. It'll be good. Honor, respect, obey your parents. God will honor you. So kids, high school students, how are you doing in surrendering your heart to God by honoring your parents, by respecting them, by obeying them? If you haven't given your mom a hug today, give her a hug after church. Even if you had a fight before church, go give her a hug afterwards. Okay? For high school students, young adults, can I encourage us? Maybe surrender your heart to the Lord by giving up that relationship that maybe goes against what God's word says. Or giving up your plans, what you want for your life. Giving it up to God and asking him, God, what do you have for my life? Young adults, if I can encourage you guys, continue to surrender your desire for a spouse. Continue to lay it up before the Lord. Be honest about it. Ask people to pray. I spent many, many years praying and asking people to pray. I'm still praying with some of my girlfriends and believing for that, for them. Can I encourage us to surrender our hearts to God in that way? If your parents, I've already said, surrender your kids, but how about your finances? The way you can see if you're actually surrendering your finances to the Lord is, are you tithing? God says, test me in this and see if I won't open up the floodgates of heaven and bless you. Pour out blessing upon you. Are you surrendering your finances to God? You know, I, I've heard this said where people will say, well, I can't afford to, to tithe. No, I've heard it said, you can't afford not to tithe. Honestly, I can say this, and it, it, this is a Bible school plug as well, because when I was in grade 12, I felt like God called me to tithe 50% of anything I made that year. And I said, okay, God, you got to come through, and you have to pay for school then. I came out of two years of Bible college, which is very expensive, debt-free, because God kept giving me scholarships, kept, I had checks in the mail. Like, God can provide. He's big enough. Surrender your finances to God. See what God's going to do. Test him. He tells us to. Test him in this. Surrender your careers. Surrender your family. Surrender your spouse. Whatever is going on in your life. I am asking, maybe we could be a people of surrender. 
You know, think about this. What would it look like if all of us actually got serious about surrendering to Christ, laying it out before him to the point where next week or the week after when Pastor Paul comes back and the altar is packed and he thinks, what did you guys put in the communion juice? Is it actually wine? Are you drunk? What would it look like if we actually got so serious that people thought, what is going on? You're actually praying with such fervency. You know what I think people would see? God work. I think we would see God change our hearts, change our situations, change our church, change our city, change our nation. If we actually got serious about surrendering to God, what else would it look like if we started to worship despite our, despite our hardship? You know, how do we surrender? How do we surrender? When you're in pain, keep surrendering through prayer. In your waiting, walk and receive, in that, and receive that peace. Walk in it. Claim it. Five times a day if you need to. If you're in the waiting stage, worship before the promise is even a reality. Worship God no matter what the circumstances are. And surrender in action after you've received the promise. Give your kids up to God. Give your situations, your, everything. Give it up to God. He's a good God. He's trustworthy. He'll do amazing things in your life. So this morning, I'll, I'll have the worship team come out And if you guys could stand with me, and if there's anybody who maybe you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, I want to encourage you guys. He's a good God. He loves you. Jesus died for you so that you can live. And if you want to accept him, do it today. It's easy to say, Jesus, I surrender my heart to you. Thank you for dying on the cross, from cleansing me from my sin, and I want to live for you now. And you know what? Sometimes it's hard walking that out, but that's why we're all here to walk with you. Because you know what? For the rest of us who know Jesus, it's a constant surrender. That's the hard part about the Christian life. Jesus will save us, but then we need to continue to walk out that surrender. So with every head bowed, if any of you feel like you need to surrender something in your life, maybe it's your hurts, maybe it's your future, Maybe you need to surrender your finances or your job, your education, your spouse, your kids. I don't know what you need to surrender, but you do. And if anybody needs to surrender one of those things, I'd encourage you to put up your hands as an act of faith, saying, God, I have some business. I need to surrender some things. Awesome. Amen. And you know, I've been praying and... um, Pastor Paul usually gets away with this, and I don't know if I can, but I've been feeling like the Holy Spirit wants something, and so I've kind of conned you into this, maybe. But I want us to put this into action now. Like Hannah did when she went to the temple of the Lord, and she laid her hurt before God, and she prayed. If you have something to surrender today, if you raise your hand, I'm actually going to encourage you to take a step of faith, to put a stake in the ground, and come up to the altar. And we're going to pray. We're going to do some of that. So come on up. If you have to surrender something, come up. God's going to meet you. Awesome. Sometimes we leave and we never put something into practice. But today I actually want us to put it into practice now so that when we leave tomorrow, we can put it into practice and the day after and the day after and we keep surrendering. 
And so what I want is, I know that this is pushing you out of your comfort zone, but like Hannah, she got honest. Honest with the Lord and honest with Eli. If you need to tap somebody on the shoulder, your neighbor up here, and say, hey, this is what I'm surrendering to God, and pray with somebody. If you've never prayed out loud, don't worry. God hears you, and it doesn't matter how it sounds. It's just a step of faith. Start praying and surrender your hurts to God.